Iran's foreign minister says forces are ready to open new fronts with Israel if the conflict in Gaza continues. Here with the top envoy is threatening. Reports of anti-Semitism surge. The Jerusalem Post communicates a 12%, 100% increase in calls for violence against Israel and Jews. Former President Trump back in a New York court for the third week of his civil fraud trial. A new witness is set to testify. We have the latest. Russian leader Vladimir Putin shaking hands with China's Xi Jinping in a show of No Limits partnership. We have more on his ongoing visit to Beijing. Belgian authorities say a gunman suspected of killing two people died after being shot by police. The suspect identified himself as a member of ISIS. What makes us unique and how can we preserve each distinct culture? An Australian woman shares her mission to preserve not just objects, but skills and stories. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. We start with updates from Israel. Iran's foreign minister says resistance forces are ready to open new fronts with Israel if the conflict in Gaza continues. In a TV appearance Monday night, the top envoy added that Israel will not be allowed to take any action in the Gaza Strip without consequences. The comments come as Israel appears to be preparing for a ground invasion following days of airstrikes. Iran's foreign minister also warned of a possible preemptive action by the resistance front. Backing the Palestinian cause has been a pillar of the Islamic Republic since the 1979 revolution. Tehran says it gives moral and financial support to Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip. The U.S. has called Iran one of the world's biggest state sponsors of terrorism. The Senate seems united when it comes to supporting Israel. The heads of both parties want to get things going and send aid, even as the House is still unable to pass bills. The surest way to stop violence against Israelis and oppression of Palestinians is to wipe terrorists like Hamas from the face of the earth. And as Israel's closest ally, the United States must lead by our example in supporting its efforts to defend itself for as long as it takes. I will be working with the administration on putting together an emergency supplemental that will give Israel the tools it needs to defend itself. That means military assistance, intelligence assistance, diplomatic assistance, and humanitarian assistance. Schumer acknowledged that the House can't pass bills yet without a speaker, but he said moving quickly is essential, which is why the Senate is going first on this. The majority leader said Hamas is an evil organization that wants to see Israel wiped off the face of the map. He added the terrorist group doesn't believe in a two-state solution. A top U.S. general has landed in Israel ahead of an expected ground assault on Hamas. U.S. General Michael Carrilla is 
head of U.S. Central Command. He told Reuters he will ensure Israel has what it needs to defend itself. Carilla is also expected to outline U.S. military support aimed at preventing an expansion of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. is financially strong enough to support wars in both Ukraine and Israel. In an October 16th interview with Sky News, Yellen was asked whether American aid for Israel comes with any conditions. Yellen insisted that America stands behind Israel, period. America can certainly afford to stand with Israel and to support Israel's military needs. And we also can and must support Ukraine in its struggle against Russia. Yellen also said the House needs speaker a speaker first before funds can be appropriated for aid to Israel. The Treasury Secretary's comments come a day after President Biden told CBS 60 Minutes that the U.S. can support both allies. Dozens of U.S. citizens have made it out of Israel. They arrived in Cyprus early this morning on the first evacuation ship. The island nation has been used as a transit hub for foreign governments to evacuate their civilians. We're going to be prepared to support American citizens as the situation evolves. So that's uh, the uh, We will continue the, the partnership we have with Cyprus in support of civilians in this moment is incredibly essential to our planning. We just arrived to Cyprus. Uh, I, I feel relieved to, to have my daughter here with me. And, uh, you know, no alarms and uh, not thinking about all the sounds of the airplanes about. Our families back at home were very worried for us, and so we said it's time to go home. So uh, we uh, contacted the consulate, and they said there's a ship leaving, and we decided in 10 minutes, let's go to Haifa. A Cypriot government official told Cyprus State TV more evacuation vessels were expected to arrive over the next 12 hours. Reports of anti-Semitism are on the rise. The Jerusalem Post says the anti-Semitism Cyber Monitoring System, or ACMS, found a 1,200 percent increase in calls for violence against Israel and Jews. The ACMS reported that Paris, New York and Buenos Aires accounted for the bulk of anti-Semitism online. Hamas launched its terror attack on Saturday, October 7th. From then until October 10th, the system tallied 157,000 anti-Semitic comments. According to the report, that's a 450 percent increase from the four days before the massacre. Social media has also come under scrutiny since the conflict erupted. Companies are working to combat misinformation and anti-Semitism on their platforms in recent days. Flagging and removing graphic and violent footage have also become top priorities. Senator Tim Scott praising Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The South Carolina lawmaker says Netanyahu showed restraint after Hamas attacked Israel over a week ago. One of the first things that Israel's done is they waited. Now, how Prime Minister Netanyahu had the kind of restraint, the, the, the refrain from immediate action, it just talks about the morality and the humanity that we, we see coming from Netanyahu into the, the Gaza. What we see there is a bit of patience with a warning to everyone. The senator also emphasized the importance of America's partnership with Israel. He said America should stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. 
Scott added the U.S. should move more firepower into the region. He said our special forces should be prepared to help rescue American hostages in Gaza. And Senator Tom Cotton commenting on Hamas supporters in the United States. The Arkansas lawmaker wants an immediate expulsion of foreigners who support Hamas and its violent acts on Israel. That includes those on student visas. Cotton served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security. He wrote that the explosion of anti-Semitism in the U.S. over the past few weeks should disturb anyone who shares American values. He added that no foreign national has a right to advocate for terrorism in the United States. And Senator Josh Hawley still wants to investigate certain student groups. He wants to know if groups who support Hamas after the attacks receive any funding from the terrorist group. He sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland on Monday. Hawley asked for an investigation, saying multiple far-left student groups supported Hamas's genocidal war against the people of Israel. Hawley added, it's entirely possible that many of these student groups receive funds as part of a terrorist network. Israeli cyber professionals are joining in the search for Gaza hostages. Over the past nine days, 450 volunteers have taken a break from their jobs to locate missing Israelis following the Hamas terrorist attack. This attack killed at least 1,300 people and marked the deadliest day in Israel's 75-year history. Israel is known for its robust high-tech sector, and cybersecurity is considered one of its leading industries. Volunteers have created what they call a war room, where they work to locate missing people and nearly 200 hostages. We have, uh, we have different uh, desks here, and we have teams that are working on technology, cutting-edge technology like AI, like uh, facial recognition, voice recognition, trying to match patterns of movements and all the stuff. On the other hand, we have people who are in social networks. Uh, what they do is basically they are the eyes on social networks of different movies, different photos that are relevant to the, to the hostages. And then we have also a group of interrogators, we call them, information scientists, data scientists that basically goes over all the data and try to, to assemble a picture of what we see. So far, the civilian efforts have proved effective in locating hundreds of individuals. Karine Nahan says the initiative has emerged as a crucial information hub for the government. Volunteers can track and identify victims by analyzing videos uploaded to social media by Hamas terrorists. But they are working against the clock as hostages remain in Hamas custody. Earlier today, I spoke with the CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of the Jewish News Syndicate, who's in Israel now, for an on-the-ground perspective and analysis of the Hamas-Israel war. Alex, thanks so much for coming on our show. To start with, I'd, I'd like to ask you, how are, how are people in Israel, how are they coping? and What's it like there on the ground? Well, it's certainly a tense moment. Uh, you know, there's been over a thousand funerals uh, in the country since the massacre which took place on Saturday. And uh, since then, over 360,000 reservists have been called up. Uh, you know, and Israel is a small country, so having uh, so many reservists who are all fathers, sons, daughters, uh, brothers, and best friends uh, being called up uh, to war is certainly unsettling. And knowing that they are likely to be entering into a, a highly booby-trapped, dangerous urban fighting environment with 
Hamas terrorists is, is definitely unsettling. At the same time, Israelis have been ducking in and out of bomb shelters as uh, air raid sirens continue to go off over Israeli population centers. Uh, just this morning, uh, Tel Aviv and the surroundings were, were all sent into bomb shelters, as were uh, in uh, Beersheba, which is Israel's third largest city, as well as yesterday in Jerusalem and certainly in the areas around the Gaza Strip. Coming up, President Biden is set to visit Israel um, for talks. Do you expect there to be substantive commitments coming out of that? What kind of message do you think it is sending? Well, on the one hand, it's certainly a tremendous show of support uh, for the state of Israel from the United States, the leader of the free world. On the other hand, it's very clear that the United States does not want to see uh, the region embroiled in a multi-front conflict. And as such, uh, there is the the belief that the Biden administration is trying to hold Israel back from attacking uh, at Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, despite the fact that there have already been significant skirmishes across the border. And Hezbollah has already fired uh, several anti-tank guided missiles at Israeli, uh, Israeli civilians and military posts, already killing uh, several people across the border. So you have a, a very tense northern border as well. And, and there's the feeling that uh, the Biden administration and, and particularly President Biden and his visit will be trying to hold Israel back from attacking and then at the same time uh, trying to arrange for humanitarian assistance uh, for Gazans that are currently being displaced inside the Gaza Strip. And President Biden will also be visiting leaders from Jordan, the Palestinian Authority and Egypt on his trip. What do you think Israelis would hope that he would be saying to them and how are they responding to this conflict? Well, I think the most important thing would be for the uh, Rafa border uh, between Gaza and Egypt to be open and to allow for those who wish to get out of the Gaza Strip to, to find safe passage uh, at first into Egypt and then uh, for humanitarian uh, aid from around the world to and international countries, uh, countries from around the world to, to figure out how to resettle uh, Gazans that don't want to enter back into the Strip because there's no doubt that the situation for them is going to be much harder uh, inside Gaza than it was before this war started. Uh, so I, I do think that uh, resettling as many Gazans as possible, uh, you know, going through the Rafa crossing is, is the, the number one priority. And given the ongoing tensions in the region, what do you think of the potential risks and benefits of, you know, the U.S.'s pressure on Egypt to open up to Gazans who are fleeing? Well, I think that that would be the most humanitarian uh, thing that could be done right now is uh, really to, to provide safe passage. Uh, it's, it's obvious that Egypt doesn't want to see a flooding of uh, Palestinians from Gaza inside their territory. Uh, I think and rightly so. It could destabilize uh, Egypt, and, and Jordan has said the same. They also don't want to see any uh, more Palestinians being forced into their country as well. They're also in a situation in which they have a majority of Palestinians, uh, and they don't want them, they don't want Jordan to be overrun either. And so I think it's very important to, to get uh, Russia, uh, to, sorry, to get Europe and, and other countries around the world. Uh, involved in, in trying to uh, find a safe passage and haven for, for refugees. And what kind of impact do you think this conflict is having on global alliances, especially in relation to the U.S.'s relation to regional security in the region? 
Well, absolutely. You know, we've seen in the last several years actually normalization between Israel and several uh, countries in the Middle East, including the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and now there's even uh, advanced negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, these were these were uh, negotiations which were have been brokered by the United States. Uh, countries in the region have been looking at the United States and, and wanting to understand its posture in the region. There's no doubt that the United States has been uh, actively uh, providing aid toward Iran, uh, reducing sanctions. Uh, and the countries in the rest of the region are hoping that the United States would ratchet up sanctions on Iran and to provide more backing for those countries in the region which are turning towards peaceful alliances. All right, Alex Trayman, CEO of Jewish News Syndicate, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Two diverging views on Israel's self-defense. China's foreign minister is saying Israel has gone too far. And the U.S. repeats that it has Israel's back. Let's take a closer look. The U.S. is sending another carrier strike group to the Middle East as the Israel-Hamas war rages. That says Israel weighs a ground invasion of Gaza. The U.S. has made it clear that the warships are not there to join the fight, but says their presence would send a deterrent message to Iran and its proxies in the region. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi said on Sunday that Israel has gone too far, accusing its actions of going beyond self-defense. The U.S. is voicing a different view. Israel has the right, indeed it has the obligation, to defend itself against these attacks from Hamas and to try to do what it can to make sure that this never happens again. Here's an expert's take on China's remark. Because this is part of China's overall plan, and when I say China, I mean the Chinese Communist Party. It's really to wrap the United States into four separate wars where we're spread too thin to defend ourselves. And those four separate wars are also plus a terrorist organization or, uh, you know, several terrorist, terrorist organizations. So when they say that it's gone too far, it gives the license to Iran to, uh, to also join the fight and to make this a much bigger issue than, than it should be on, on, on the face of it. Israel has ordered over one million in northern Gaza to evacuate to the south, warning there could be significant ground operations. Worth noting, Israel regularly warns civilians ahead of its attacks on Hamas's weapon storage areas, giving residents time to evacuate. Hamas launched its unprecedented strike on Israel last Saturday. The terrorist group that controls Palestine fired thousands of rockets at Israel. Gunmen also streamed across Israel's border, killing over 1,400 people and taking almost 200 hostages. Israel vowed to wipe out the terrorist organization, pounding the Gaza Strip with airstrikes. It also cut off electricity, food, fuel and water around Gaza until Hamas releases Israeli hostages. According to America's top diplomat Antony Blinken, the border crossing between Egypt and Gaza will reopen so humanitarian aid can reach Palestinians. To learn more about China's stance on the Israel-Hamas war, we speak with China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo. Let's unpack the Chinese regime's relationship with the Middle East. Antonio Graceffo, thank you for joining us again. We know the Chinese Communist Party tries to take advantage of world conflicts for its own gain. How are they responding to the Israel-Hamas war? 
Well, I believe the reason that China has not condemned the attack is because China is trying to build points with the uh, greater Muslim world. And why would they be trying to build points with the greater Muslim world? China is the world's largest consumer of oil, so it's very important to China to have good relations with the Middle East. They uh, support Iran by bypassing sanctions. They have closer relationship with Iran. Iran under underwrites uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. So this puts China in a better position to ally itself with those countries, even if it means alienating Israel. And we're hearing reports of Hamas blocking Gazans from fleeing areas where Israel is attacking um, Hamas targets, leading to greater casualties, civilian casualties in those places. You said more casualties in Gaza will be good for China, will be a win for China. How so? The reason why that's a win for China is because China will play the global propaganda game. Hamas will prevent civilians from leaving Gaza. This leaves Israel with two choices, either don't attack or they can attack, but they'll wind up causing civilian casualties. Every civilian casualty will be amplified on Twitter, on social media, to turn public opinion against Israel. But have they spoken about the Hamas attack on Israel and the civilians killed in that instance? Very little. Uh, they said something like, uh, we, we, we don't support violence or we condemn violence on both sides, something like that. It was a very, very, very um, muted sort of response. Understood. Now, according to Reuters, the Taliban is attending China's Belt and Road Forum in Beijing, um, taking place today and tomorrow. There's been speculation China would be the first country to recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. What's behind this coziness towards this Islamic fundamentalist group? Now, China was the first uh, country to have uh, engagement, although it wasn't official, with uh, Afghanistan. It was also the first country to appoint an ambassador to the Taliban. And uh, basically, China is trying to get the Taliban onto their side. They're building coalitions of countries that are heavily sanctioned, like North Korea, like Iran, like Russia, onto the Chinese side. And now China is presenting itself as a friend of the Muslim world uh, while simultaneously committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. Explain this contradiction for us. This is the great irony, but I think that, it, you know, money talks. I think that you have a lot of Muslim-majority countries in the Belt and Road. They're benefiting financially, ostensibly, and for that, they're keeping their mouths shut about Xinjiang. Taliban needs friends. They're not going to speak up about Xinjiang, even though Taliban uh, uh, extremists, terrorists, were going into Xinjiang in the past and, you know, committing terrorist acts on behalf of the Uyghur. Wow. Now, this stance towards the Middle East isn't something new. Uh, for example, Yasser Arafat visited China 14 times, and he had meetings with the highest-level CCP officials over the years. How far back does the CCP's friendliness towards Islamic fundamentalists go, and why this relationship, if you can say a little more? In the 1950s and 60s, when China first started reaching out, and actually China and Russia had a very similar strategy, which was they presented themselves as the anti-colonial alternative. So everywhere in the world where there was an anti-colonial movement, uh, they would uh, make contact with those people and support them. And of course, a lot of these movements in the early days were socialist or communist. And so that that put China in uh, league with the PLO, for example. They were one of the first countries to engage uh, with the PLO and to support them. And what does the future of China's relationship with Islamic fundamentalist groups look like? Can we expect this kind of trend to continue? 
I think it will continue. Um, China is not really making any significant movements towards becoming um, a, a, a net fuel exporter or to stop importing fuel, stop buying oil. So China will remain the world's largest oil consumer I, I, unless India grows at such a significant rate that they wind up buying more. So as long as China needs oil, China will be the number one uh, client of the Middle East. China will continue to try and build coalitions against the United States, and that would mean then allying itself with these terrorist organizations. Okay, Antonio Graceffo, thank you. Coming up, how will the newest gag order impact Trump? The judge narrowly tailored the order. Is it fair or can it still affect his run for president? And we hear tips to deal with all the bad news. Amid wars and turbulence, a psychologist tells us the best way to cope and help your kids as well. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Former President Trump appearing in a New York court today for the third week of his civil fraud trial. The frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination arrived after a Monday campaign stop in Iowa. New York Attorney General Letitia James alleges Trump reaped hundreds of millions of dollars by overstating the value of his properties. James is seeking at least $250 million in fines. A permanent ban against Trump and his sons Eric and Donald Jr. from running businesses in New York and a five-year commercial real estate ban. A real estate appraiser involved in valuing Trump's 40 Wall Street property is expected to testify. Trump has denied wrongdoing and defended the valuations of his properties. In his Washington case, Trump is now con con contesting with a new gag order. How will it impact the election fraud case? To learn more about it, I spoke with lead counsel to the National Legal and Policy Center, Paul Kaminar. Paul Kaminar, thanks for coming on our show. To begin with, I'd like to look at Trump's attorney's arguments. They're saying that the proposed gag order is overly broad and really infringes on Trump's First Amendment rights. You were in the courtroom just yesterday. How, what's your assessment of this? How does it intersect with, you know, needing to create a fair proceeding, but also not infringe on his yeah, First the, Amendment the rights? Court Sure. The, the judge yesterday tried to, uh, you know, thread the needle here in terms of prohibiting uh, Trump from threatening witnesses, which everyone agrees he cannot do, and is right on the campaign trail to, to criticize uh, the process, to criticize uh, uh, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, to criticize uh, Pence, for example, who's running against him. And, and it's going to be hard to draw that line. And I think uh, when the judge said, you can't call Jack Smith, you know, deranged or a thug. Uh, but his attorney said, wait a minute, Your Honor, uh, a thug is is a bully. I mean, they're, they're, we can criticize uh, that. And she says, well, OK, you can criticize the process of prosecution, but you can't be personal about it. But it's hard to draw that line. And, and I think uh, the court went over the line here and, and may infringe on Trump's First Amendment rights. Right. You make an interesting point there about this delicate balance of trying to actually pin down what is or is not um, 
forbidden speech or should be forbidden speech. I want to look now at the prosecutors who are arguing that Trump's statements could influence potential jurors. Now, what are the legal precedents and arguments for this kind of um, assessment? Yeah, I, I think that argument doesn't hold any water here. I mean, they went after him because he was criticizing the District of Columbia, that uh, the, the city is, is crime-ridden. And the prosecutor's saying, oh, you're criticizing the jurors. No, come on. That's his First Amendment right to, to do that. So he's not criticizing the jurors. He's not tainting the jury pool. If anything, uh, the jury pool, uh, which is 90% Democratic, is against him to begin with. And this, if anything, uh, hurts his uh, uh, fairness of having a trial. So I think that argument is is, is not really worth worthwhile that he's... And the judge also said, and the, process, uh, and the defense attorney, look, Your Honor, when the jury pool comes before the court, you can ask them, were you hearing these comments? You can ask them, were you influenced by it? And that way you can keep those people off the jury pool. All right. And so in light of all of this, how do you think this ruling or this rule could impact the trial? Well, I mean, uh, it, it, it can't impact the trial. It actually impacts the campaign, which yeah. limits uh, Trump from uh, being uh, uh, campaigning and telling his uh, uh, you know, followers what's going on. Uh, now, the order hasn't been written yet. So when that comes out in the next day or so, We'll look at it carefully, Trump's attorneys will, and they may uh, uh, likely appeal it. And so uh, we haven't had the last word on this yet. What are the potential sanctions or penalties that could be applied in this case if this rule goes ahead? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that was asked, and, and there's sanctions that the court could uh, impose. Uh, she could bring Trump into court and admonish him. She could uh, impose a fine. Uh, uh, she could actually, as uh, you know, imprison him, uh, but that 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 seems so impossible and improbable here. So that that that's a good question, and I I, I think as as his attorney said, Your Honor, so far he's abided by your pretrial uh, 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 conditions. He hasn't threatened witnesses uh, and and the jury. So that's the baseline. So this other stuff the prosecutor's asking, I think, is just not necessary to have. All right. Thank you so much. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel to the National Legal and Policy Center. Really appreciate it. Are you feeling anxious about the news these days? What can we do to cope with the tension that builds up with each new war, scandal, or tragedy? We speak with Dr. Chloe Carmichael, author of Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Dr. Chloe Carmichael, thank you so much for joining us. With the Israel-Hamas war, turbulent politics, COVID fallout, and so many of the other crazy things just unfolding in the world right now, uh, people are really reeling with anxiety from all of this. I mean, some are even in extremely um, difficult circumstances emotionally. What's your advice to them? Well, the healthy function of anxiety is actually to stimulate preparation behaviors or healthy action behaviors. So I actually have a system called CARE, C-A-R-E. And what we do is first we consider, we think about what's going on, and then we take some kind of a healthy action. So that could be, you know, trying to get politically involved, writing a letter to your politician, finding out how you can support or donate. And then reflecting, thinking about the action you took, thinking, does, does that feel right to me? And then the E is actually to ease into something else, because we don't want to remain myopically focused on one issue. That's not usually good for us. 
How can people keep up with current events, with all these crazy things we're talking about, without getting overwhelmed and just disconnecting entirely? Yes, thank you. That's a really important question. So I do think it's important that we have to know our limits. I mean, there's all kinds of extremely graphic images online right now. And sometimes we can get the confused idea that how much graphic material we are willing to watch is a barometer of how much compassion we have. And that's not necessarily true. So you have to know your limits. And if you are starting to see a news clip rolling and you say, okay, I get the feeling they're going to show something awful here, you don't have to see it. It doesn't mark you as more or less compassionate. Again, thinking about the point is, is that what is this stimulating me to do? Maybe have a conversation and talk about it with somebody, even drawing closer to your faith in a time like this. Those are good ways to draw support and to take healthy action. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your book, Nervous Energy, talks about harnessing the power of anxiety, and you touched on this a little bit uh, just before. How does one do that? And what could that look like for people experiencing anxiety about you know, the horrific news we're hearing out of the Middle East right now? Yeah, so the interesting thing about anxiety, again, is that it's healthy. Um function is to stimulate preparation behaviors. And one of the ways it does that is by zinging our bodies sometimes with a lot of adrenaline and a lot of cortisol, as if we're supposed to go physically fight a war. So one thing that's also important to do is to make sure that we are getting our exercise and giving our bodies a chance to just work out some of the stress hormones you know, that we are experiencing. However, also, as far as direct action that we might want to be taking, you know, I, I think we all probably know someone who knows someone who knows someone who's in Israel, right? And so maybe asking, is, is there a care package I can send? Is there a letter of support I can write? Even my local politician, letting them know we want it to be clear that we stand with Israel. So the idea is action. Again, we don't want to just sit there letting those ideas stew around inside. Yeah. And I just want to focus on children you know, these kinds of things impact them differently. How so, would you say? Mm. Well, of course, with children, the key thing is that we need to make them feel safe. Um, and you can actually do the care system for children as well, where you can help them to consider and maybe take a small healthy action and reflect and then help guide them to know that it's okay to ease into something else. But the key thing for children to know is that they are with a loving adult who will keep them safe and definitely guard your children from social media right now. They do not need to be exposed to these images. All right, Dr. Chloe, thank you very much. After the break, a gunman suspected of killing two people in Belgium has died. According to Belgian authorities, the suspect identified himself as a member of ISIS. And Britain is taking steps to address overcrowded prisons with a focus on inmates from foreign countries. Find out more about this money-saving plan. the news. Belgian authorities say a gunman suspected of killing two people died after being shot by police this morning. 
The suspect identified himself as a member of ISIS and claimed responsibility for the shooting in a video posted online. Here's the story. The aftermath of the scene where two Swedish football fans were shot dead in Brussels on Monday evening. Now authorities say a 45-year-old Tunisian gunman suspected of killing them died on Tuesday after being shot by police in a cafe elsewhere in the Belgian city. The man, who was shot in the chest, died in hospital from his wounds, media said. He's suspected of killing two Swedish nationals and wounding a third in the city centre on Monday night. On Tuesday morning, police were seen removing bags of evidence from the apartment block where the suspect lived. Officials say the suspected attacker unsuccessfully sought asylum in Belgium in November 2019 and that he was known to police in connection with people smuggling. The shooting came at a time of heightened security concerns in some European countries linked to the Israel-Hamas conflict. The suspect had fled the scene after the shooting on Monday as a football match between Belgium and Sweden was about to start. It triggered a massive manhunt and prompted Belgium to raise its terrorism alert to its highest level. And now some more headlines from around Europe. The EU foreign policy chief says Biden's visit to Israel and Jordan absolutely necessary. Here's Joseph Borrell. President Biden's visit is absolutely necessary because we have asked Israel to carry out its defense activities respecting international law, that humanitarian corridors be opened so aid can be taken to Gaza, that civilians be protected. I am sure this will be the message of the U.S. president. Burrell also acknowledged that Biden will go to Jordan before Israel. That's to meet with leaders of the Arab world, including Egyptian leaders and President Abbas of Palestine in the West Bank. European Union leaders today are holding an emergency video conference. That's to settle on a united approach to the crisis triggered by the Hamas attack on Israel. It comes after days of confusion and mixed messaging. For example, last week, a member of the EU's executive body declared on social media that all EU development aid to Palestinians had been frozen, only for the announcement to be later rescinded. In fact, on Monday, the European Commission announced its tripling humanitarian aid to Gaza. This was at a summit in Albania in Eastern Europe. The Commission has announced to triple humanitarian aid for civilians in Gaza to 75 million euros. And we are launching an EU humanitarian air bridge to Gaza through Egypt. The first two flights will start this week. She added there can be no justification for Hamas's heinous acts of terror and the brutal slaughter of 1,400 people in Israel. She said Israel has the right to defend itself, but that civilians in Gaza nevertheless need humanitarian aid right now. The commission previously also announced an urgent review of financial assistance to ensure no money is being taken by Hamas. And today, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with the King of Jordan. He called on regional actors to prevent an escalation in the Middle East. Once again, I expressly warn Hezbollah and Iran not to intervene in this conflict. Together with our allies, we as a federal government are doing everything in our power to ensure that this conflict does not escalate further. Jordan's king, meanwhile, warned against pushing Palestinian refugees into Egypt or Jordan. He said that the humanitarian situation must be dealt with inside Gaza and the West Bank. 
and that a third of Jordan's population is already of Palestinian origin. German Chancellor Schultz is on a solidarity visit to Israel now. He'll then travel on to Egypt from there. Russia is revoking ratification of a treaty which bans nuclear testing. The former Soviet nation says the U.S. has an irresponsible attitude to global security. The lower house of Russia's parliament voted by 412 to zero to exit the treaty. Some experts are concerned Russia may now be inching towards a nuclear test that could be perceived as a threat by the West. Turning to Spain, the European Union is conducting its first joint EU military exercise. The EU says it's to boost their role as a defense actor and global security provider. A total of 2,800 men and women from Austria, Spain, France, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Malta, Portugal and Romania are actively participating. The primary aim of these exercises is to be able to quickly deploy forces beyond the borders of the European Union. With the target set for 2025, the EU aspires to be able to swiftly mobilize up to 5,000 troops in response to imminent threats and crisis situations. And lastly, international drug trafficking in Europe. Italy today announced almost 60 people were arrested in Italy and Spain. That's on suspicion of international drug trafficking, money laundering and fraud. Italy's police says searches, arrests and seizures are ongoing throughout the country and abroad. Britain has set out plans to tackle overcrowded prisons in England and Wales. More foreign prisoners will be sent back to their own country following an earlier number removed in March. Currently there are over 30,000 foreign criminals in British prisons costing more than $1.2 billion a year. Let's zoom in. The government has pledged to send more foreign prisoners home as Justice Secretary Alex Chalk on Monday set out a range of reforms covering England and Wales. It comes amid serious concerns about overcrowding in British prisons, with nearly 90,000 prisoners in England and Wales. The Justice Secretary said that over 3,000 foreign criminals have already been removed in the year to March, but more than 10,000 remain locked up. Under new plans, foreign offenders will be removed sooner into their sentences. Currently, foreign criminals can be removed up to a year before the end of their sentence. Ministers want to bring that forward six months, in a move hoped will save £70,000 per prisoner. The announcement also includes plans to bring forward legislation that would allow prisoners to be held overseas, similar to Belgium and Norway. Chalk also plans to send fewer low-level offenders to prison. He suggested less serious offenders could instead clean up neighborhoods, scrub graffiti off walls, or plant forests. Labour labelled the plan as half-baked. Coming up, Netflix planning another price hike. That's after the streaming giant took action against password sharing and saw an uptick in subscriptions. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Staying with us, Netflix got through the Hollywood writer's strike in better shape than most rivals. It was helped by its strong lineup of content and a major presence in overseas markets.
Now the streaming giant is planning its next steps. The firm is due to release earnings on Wednesday, and analysts think price hikes could come soon after. Netflix is widely expected to raise charges for its ad-free service that should push more people onto the tier with ads, where commercials can generate more income per user. Any such move would come after the success of a crackdown on password sharing. It's thought the network boosted subscribers by around 6 million over the latest quarter, largely by stopping many people watching for free outside the same household. That has also helped make it the only profitable major streamer. Overall, Wall Street analysts predict Netflix will post its fastest growth in five quarters. Third quarter revenue is seen jumping 7.7 to just over $8.5 billion. Now we turn to a conversation with a cultural conservationist. She tells me that while many aspects of humanity's heritage are at risk of being lost, much can be done to turn the tide. And she and her team down under are working to do just that. We spoke when I was there earlier this year. Conservator Victoria Pierce sees culture as infinitely renewable, but she says cultural heritage is not. Let's see some of our discussion. Every element of our community can be strengthened and benefited by em embracing our, our past. Conservator Victoria Pierce sees culture as infinitely renewable, but says cultural heritage is not. Our heritage and our culture is what defines us. So in, fundamentally, it's always evolving and always changing. It's, an, it's almost limitless as a resource. But what is being lost is our value for our culture. As we become more global, our human connection gets smaller with the internet and through social media. And so our unique assets of what defines us nationally, in our communities, locally even, starts being diluted. She and her team in Fishwick, Australia, apply specialized skills to conserve the essence of and stories within, objects, artworks, buildings, and more. I have a corrosion expert and metals conservator, an electrician and conservator who works on electrical artworks. We also have a specialist book and um, paper photographic conservator. And they work to keep intangible assets alive as well, such as skills that Pierce says are sunsetting much too soon. Barrel makers, blacksmiths, um, watchmakers, French polishers. We have uh, tanners, bookbinders, um, stone carvers, monument makers, gilders, luthiers all come to our event. A trade show to demonstrate craftsmanship to younger generations who may be mesmerized by more modern, lucrative endeavors. Because this younger generation has probably never even heard of a Cooper, uh, let alone seen one work. So the idea is to be encourage the next generation to consider these as really needed, essential and valuable careers that have fantastic export opportunities and an opportunity through export to contribute to a world where national sovereignty and political stability coexist. It's about really looking at what our, what our strengths are through our culture and our heritage, what our strengths are that we bring to the table 
fostering those, preserving those strengths, and then sharing and exchanging those strengths. Pierce believes that each individual is responsible for increasing diplomacy amid the rising polarization in personal and political spheres. And through individual action, we increase diplomacy and civility, we could actually avoid real tragedy and potentially global war. A future that she and her team work towards every day. A mission that she and her team work towards every day. Reporting from New York and Australia, Stephanie Cox, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. President Biden about to leave for Israel. What are the goals and risks of Biden's visit to an active war zone? And how does it differ from his secretive trip to Kyiv? Former President Trump back in a New York court for the third week of his civil fraud trial. A new witness is set to testify. We have the latest. New York City announces a policy change for illegal immigrants staying in shelters. Learn more about the new rule taking effect next week. back. President Biden is leaving today for a wartime visit to Israel. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good afternoon, Iris. What's on Biden's agenda as he leaves for an active war zone? Good afternoon to both of you. So President Biden is expected to leave the White House for Israel later today, and he's expected to spend part of Wednesday in Tel Aviv, meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And Biden is only going to spend a day in Israel, but he's go also going to meet with Jordan and Egyptian and Palestinian leaders in Jordan after this trip. And this trip is an extraordinary one because it is during, of course, a war, and that, of course, Israel is preparing for a ground offensive into Gaza after terrorist attacks by Hamas. So U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announcing this trip last night in Israel after seven hours of meeting with Israeli officials said that President Biden would send a very clear message. Watch. He's coming here at a critical moment. President Biden will again make clear, as he's done unequivocally since Hamas's slaughter of more than 1,400 people, including at least 30 Americans, that Israel has the right and indeed the duty to defend its people from Hamas and other terrorists and to prevent future attacks. And specifically, Blinken says that Biden will have four goals. The first goal is to reaffirm U.S. solidarity with Israel and to find out more about what Israel needs to defend itself. And the second goal is to send a clear message and if not a warning to surrounding countries that they should not try to get involved and widen this war. And the third goal is to work with Israel to secure the release of the hostages now in the hands of Hamas. And lastly, you should learn more directly from Israeli officials about their aims and strategies in this war. Yeah, and Biden certainly has a lot on his plate here. So Iris, you emphasized that it's a wartime visit. Um, are there any risks associated with this trip? 
That's a great question. So let's not forget that Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday when he was meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, they were forced to shelter in place in a bunker after air sirens went off in Tel Aviv warning of incoming rockets. So there certainly are security risks associated with being in that place. And we also know that this trip to Israel is a lot different from Biden's last secret and, of course, highly sensitive trip to Kiev during Ukraine's war in, in February. And last time, the trip wasn't even publicized until he made it to Ukraine after a 10-hour train ride from Polish borders. Of course, this time the trip was announced ahead of time, but the White House says they have weighed the risk and deemed it safe enough to both execute and announce the trip before it happens. Back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Iris. To learn more about where China stands on Israel, we speak with China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo about the Chinese regime's relationship with the Middle East. Antonio Graceffo, thank you for joining us again. We know the Chinese Communist Party tries to take advantage of world conflicts for its own gain. How are they responding to the Israel-Hamas war? Well, I believe the reason that China has not condemned the attack is because China is trying to build points with the uh, greater Muslim world. And why would they be trying to build points with the greater Muslim world? China is the world's largest consumer of oil, so it's very important to China to have good relations with the Middle East. They uh, support Iran by bypassing sanctions. They have closer relationship with Iran. Iran under underwrites uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. So this puts China in a better position to ally itself with those countries, even if it means alienating Israel. And we're hearing reports of Hamas blocking Gazans from fleeing areas where Israel is attacking um, Hamas targets, leading to greater casualties, civilian casualties in those places. You've said more casualties in Gaza will be good for China, will be a win for China. How so? The reason why that's a win for China is because China will play the global propaganda game. Hamas will prevent civilians from leaving Gaza. This leaves Israel with two choices, either don't attack or they can attack, but they'll wind up causing civilian casualties. Every civilian casualty will be amplified on Twitter, on social media to turn public opinion against Israel. But have they spoken about the Hamas attack on Israel and the civilians killed in that instance? Very little. Uh, they said something like, uh, we, we, we don't support violence or we condemn violence on both sides, something like that. It was a very, very, very um, muted sort of response. Understood. Now, according to Reuters, the Taliban is attending China's Belt and Road Forum in Beijing, um, taking place today and tomorrow. There's been speculation China would be the first country to recognize the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan. What's behind this coziness towards this Islamic fundamentalist group? Now, China was the first uh, country to have uh, engagement, although it wasn't official, with uh, Afghanistan. It was also the first country to appoint an ambassador to the Taliban. And uh, basically, China is trying to get the Taliban onto their side. They're building coalitions of countries that are heavily sanctioned, like North Korea, like Iran, like Russia, onto the Chinese side. And now China is presenting itself as a friend of the Muslim world, uh, while simultaneously committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. Explain this contradiction for us. This is the great irony, but I think that, it, you know, money talks. I think that you have a lot of Muslim-majority countries in the Belt and Road 
they're benefiting financially ostensibly and for that they're keeping their mouths shut about Xinjiang. Taliban needs friends. They're not going to speak up about Xinjiang, even though Taliban uh, uh, extremists, terrorists were going into Xinjiang in the past and you know committing terrorist acts on behalf of the Uyghur. Wow. Now, this stance towards the Middle East isn't something new. Uh, for example, Yasser Arafat visited China 14 times, and he had meetings with the highest-level CCP officials over the years. How far back does the CCP's friendliness towards Islamic fundamentalists go, and why this relationship, if you can say a little more? In the 1950s and 60s, when China first started reaching out, and actually China and Russia had a very similar strategy, which was they presented themselves as the anti-colonial alternative. So everywhere in the world where there was an anti-colonial movement, uh, they would uh, make contact with those people and support them. And of course, a lot of these movements in the early days were socialist or communist. And so that that put China in uh, league with the PLO, for example. They were one of the first countries to engage uh, with the PLO and to support them. And what does the future of China's relationship with Islamic fundamentalist groups look like? Can we expect this kind of trend to continue? I think it will continue. Um, China is not really making any significant movements towards becoming um, a, a, a net fuel exporter or to stop importing fuel, stop buying oil. So China will remain the world's largest oil consumer, uh, uh, unless India grows at such a significant rate that they wind up buying more. So as long as China needs oil, China will be the number one uh, client of the Middle East. China will continue to try and build coalitions against the United States, and that would mean then allying itself with these terrorist organizations. Okay, Antonio Graceffo, thank you. Coming up, Florida is deliberating lawyers using artificial intelligence. A proposal suggests lawyers, lawyers could be required to get their clients' consent. And Oklahoma officials scrutinize an investment proposal. It would favor BlackRock, which boycotts oil and gas companies. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Back. Former President Trump appearing in a New York court today for the third week of his civil fraud trial. The frontrunner for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination arrived after a Monday campaign stop in Iowa. Here's the former president just before entering the courtroom. And the people of our country understand it. We're being railroaded. And I have other trials we're being railroaded. You saw it yesterday where they take away my right to speak. I won't be able to speak like I'm speaking to you. And I'm not saying anything wrong. I'm saying the truth. I won't be able to do this with that trial because the judge, which of course we're appealing, because the judge said basically I don't have a right to speak and I'm, a, I'm the number one candidate leading the Republicans by 55 or 60 points. That should be over. I'm leading Joe Biden and leading Joe Biden and I'm being restricted my, my speech has been taken away from me. I'm a candidate that's running for office, and I'm not allowed to speak. This is a railroading that's all coming out of the Department of Justice. New York Attorney General Letitia James alleges Trump reaped hundreds of millions of dollars by overstating the value of his properties. 
James is seeking at least $250 million in fines, a permanent ban against Trump and his sons Eric and Donald Jr. from running businesses in New York, and a five-year commercial real estate ban. A real estate appraiser involved in valuing Trump's 40 Wall Street property is expected to testify. Trump has denied wrongdoing and defended the valuations of his properties. And in his Washington case, Trump is now contending with a new gag order. How will it impact the election fraud case? To learn more about it, I spoke with lead counsel to the National Legal and Policy Center, Paul Kaminar. Paul Kaminar, thanks for coming on our show. To begin with, I'd like to look at thanks. Trump's attorney's arguments. They're saying that the proposed gag order is overly broad and it really infringes on Trump's First Amendment rights. You were in the courtroom just yesterday. How, what's your assessment of this? How does it intersect with you know, needing to create a fair proceeding but also not infringe on his yeah, First the, Amendment the rights? Court Sure. The, the judge yesterday tried to, uh, you know, thread the needle here in terms of prohibiting uh, Trump from threatening witnesses, which everyone agrees he cannot do, and his right on the campaign trail to, to criticize uh, the process, to criticize uh, uh, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, to criticize uh, Pence, for example, who's running against him. And, and it's going to be hard to draw that line. And I think uh, when the judge said, you can't call Jack Smith, you know, deranged or a thug. Uh, but his attorney said, wait a minute, Your Honor, uh, a thug is is a bully. I mean, they're, they're, we can criticize uh, that. And she says, well, okay, you can criticize the process of prosecution, but you can't be personal about it. But it's hard to draw that line. And and I think uh, the court went over the line here and, and may infringe on Trump's First Amendment rights. Right. You make an interesting point there about this delicate balance of trying to actually pin down what is or is not um, forbidden speech or should be forbidden speech. I want to look now at the prosecutors who are arguing that Trump's statements could influence potential jurors. Now, what are the legal precedents and arguments for this kind of um, assessment? Yeah, I, I think that argument doesn't hold any water here. I mean, they went after him because he was criticizing the District of Columbia, that uh, the, the city is, is crime-ridden. And the prosecutor's saying, oh, you're criticizing the jurors. No, come on. That's his First Amendment right to, to do that. So he's not criticizing the jurors. He's not tainting the jury pool. If anything, uh, the jury pool, uh, which is 90% Democratic, is against him to begin with. And this, if anything, uh, hurts his... Uh, uh, fairness of having a trial. So I think that argument is 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 not really worth worthwhile. That is, and the judge also said, and the process, uh, and the defense attorney, look, your honor, when the jury pool comes before the court, you can ask them, were you hearing these comments? You can ask them, were you influenced by it? And that way, you can keep those people off the jury pool. All right. And so, in light of all of this, how do you think this ruling or this rule could impact the trial? Well, I mean, uh, it, it, it can't impact the trial. It actually impacts the campaign, which yeah. limits uh, Trump from uh, being uh, uh, campaigning and telling his uh, uh, you know, followers what's going on. Uh, now, the order hasn't been written yet. So when that comes out in the next day or so, we'll look at it carefully. Trump's attorneys will, and they may uh, uh, likely appeal it. And so uh, we haven't had the last word on this yet. 
What are the potential sanctions or penalties that could be applied in this case if this rule goes ahead? Well, that's a good question. Uh, that was asked, and, and there's sanctions that the court could uh, impose. Uh, she could bring Trump into court and admonish him. She could uh, impose a fine. Uh, uh, she could actually, as uh, you know, imprison him. Uh, but that, that that seems so impossible and improbable here. So that that that's a good question. And I I, I think as as his attorney said, Your Honor, so far he's abided by your pretrial uh, uh, conditions. He hasn't threatened witnesses uh, and and the jury. So that's the baseline. So this other stuff the prosecutor's asking, I think, is just not necessary to have. All right. Thank you so much. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel to the National Legal and Policy Center. Really appreciate it. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill to give California drivers an extra month to update their vehicle registrations. The bill's supporters say it aims to help minorities who they say are stopped more often for small traffic violations. The law gives drivers a 30-day grace period before they can be ticked for ticketed for out-of-date registrations. It also prohibits law enforcement from stopping a driver only for a registration that's overdue by less than 30 days. But police are authorized to ticket drivers for expired registration if they pull over a vehicle for any other violation. The law takes effect July 1st, 2024. The Florida Bar is deliberating over whether or not lawyers need to get their clients permission to use artificial intelligence. As it considers the new proposal, it's calling on Florida lawyers to share their thoughts on programs like OpenAI's ChatGPT and Google's BARD. Florida Bar members will have until December 1st to submit comments to the Ethics Council, which will meet again in late November. AI is increasingly being used in legal matters, but the results have been mixed. Oklahoma officials are questioning why BlackRock is handling state retirement funds when it's on restricted list. A new proposal would give the investment firm responsibility for 60% of the Oklahoma public employee retirement system's assets. This may violate the Oklahoma Energy Discrimination Elimination Act of 2022. The law prohibits any firm that boycotts oil and gas producers from handling state investments. BlackRock is on a list of companies barred by state law from handling state funds because the investment manager allegedly boycotts oil and gas companies. BlackRock's senior managing director and vice chairman said the company is focused on its responsibility to its clients. On Monday, New York City announced a new policy that will limit the amount of time a migrant family can stay at a shelter. Illegal immigrants will now be required to leave those facilities after 60 days and will have to reapply for placement. The new rule takes effect next week. 60-day notices will be given out to families who have been in the system the longest. This is the latest push to reduce resources to the more than 64,000 people who are currently in New York City's shelter system. Last month, New York City imposed a rule requiring migrant adults to leave its shelter system after 30 days before they could reapply for shelter. Since last spring, more than 126,000 illegal immigrants have arrived in New York City. The city is expected to open a new shelter in the coming weeks in Brooklyn. That would serve around 500 families with children. 
The National Park Service is purchasing homes at risk of collapsing into the sea in North Carolina due to beach erosion. The service says it will result in safer conditions on the beach after other homes have collapsed into the water and scattered debris in the area in recent years. The government recently bought two houses for a combined total of more than $700,000. The plan now, tear them down before they collapse. The move represents a new chapter in addressing a growing problem of similar at-risk oceanfront properties. Officials say it's a new tool in helping mitigate the problem. The money to buy the homes came from the Land and Water Conservation Fund, established by Congress in 1964. It protects important cultural and national areas, natural areas using money from offshore oil and gas leasing instead of tax revenue. The White House is reviewing an FDA plan to ban menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars. Now it just needs to be approved by the Office of Management and Budget, although exactly when that could happen isn't known. Scientists say menthol makes smoking more addictive and appealing to young people. In fact, the CDC reports more than half of kids who smoke use menthol products. The American Lung Association is hailing the FDA's proposed ban. Experts predict the tobacco industry will fight it in court if it gets final approval. When we return, changes are coming for New Yorkers' wages and potentially for those that drive to the city. It'll be good news for some and bad news for others. And a payment deadline is looming for Chinese property giant Country Garden. It's now on the brink of default. We'll have the details soon when we return. staying with us. Potential changes are coming for New York minimum wage laws next year. And changes are also coming to how much you pay to park at a parking meter in Manhattan. Joining us live now is NTD Business's Don Ma. First off, Don, what changes are coming for the minimum wage in New York? Right. Uh, so people who currently make a minimum wage may actually be able to see a wage increase uh, next year. So that's going to include people all across New York State. But, you know, of course, it depends on uh, where where you live. Uh, you know, that amount could be a bit more or it could be a bit less. So currently, uh, the minimum wage in New York City is $15 an hour in New York State. That amount is $14.20 an hour. Uh, but starting on January 1st, 2024, uh, the minimum wage pay, you know, will get a bit of a bump. So how much of an increase will New Yorkers get? So I think it's a, a pretty decent increase. Uh, so beginning next year, uh, New York City will have its minimum wage uh, increased to $16 an hour. And that's also going to include uh, Long Island and Westchester. And then everywhere else uh, from what I just mentioned will get $15 an hour. And that's not all, Steph. After 2024, uh, so in 2025 and 2026 as well, the minimum wage will get annual increases of 50 cents per hour. And then in 2027, the minimum wage in the state will actually increase annually according to the Consumer Price Index. So of course, uh, the Consumer Price Index is the inflation report that we uh, talk about here every month. 
Now, Don, tell us about what changes are coming to parking meters in Manhattan. Well, Tris, uh, it seems like uh, here's where the good news ends uh, from me. Um, because it's already happened. Those who drive into the city will now have to fork out more money to use those meters in the city uh, because they're getting rate hikes. And Chris, I know you just got a car recently, so uh, if you're planning to use a parking meter here, you may just have to fork out 20% uh, more money in some areas. So the increases, of course, it's going to vary by zone, and the highest increases are in Midtown and Lower Manhattan. Uh, hourly rates will increase there to $5.50, up, up from $4.50, so that's an, uh, a dollar increase. And then for the second hour, uh, the increase will be up by $1.50 uh, to $9. So the rest of the five boroughs won't be spared either on October 27th. Uh, parking rates uh, there will increase. Uh, for example, in Queens, and then rates in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Staten Island will go up in November. Um, so, Chris, that's something for you to consider the next time you drive here. And why are, why are parking meters seeing rate hikes, Don? You know, Steph, uh, I think there could be a number of reasons here. Um, you know, there's always going to be uh, rate increases, whether we're talking about parking, uh, you know, subways, buses, tolls, because, you know, as long as there's inflation, as long as uh, there is wage growth, right? I mean, people need to earn more money over time. Uh, so it, it's, it's all related. But I think another reason is that uh, because parking meters actually contribute to a higher turnover rate, uh, promo promoting shorter parking sessions, which also increases parking availability in high demand areas and allowing more people to park during the day for things like you know, shopping and deliveries. Uh, so those are some potential reasons. All right, thank you very much, Don. Yeah, thank you. And now some short headlines from Asia and around the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin was greeted by Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing. Putin's making the trip as a guest of honor at the Belt and Road Forum. Russia's foreign minister said the two would discuss various topics in a bid to deepen ties. Both Moscow and Beijing have criticized Israel and called for a ceasefire in the Middle East. Leaders from the Taliban will also appear at the summit, along with heads of over 130 other countries. China's Belt and Road Project is facing backlash from the West, warning that it's a debt trap for developing countries. Released Australian journalist Chung Lei bears her soul in her first interview. She returned home to her children last Wednesday after being held for three years by Beijing on national security charges. Sometimes I feel like an invalid, like a newborn, and very fragile. And other times I feel like I'd, I could fly. <laughs> and I want to embrace everything and I enjoy everything so intensely and savour it. You get to the airport, uh, who's the first person you see? Is it Penny Wong or is it your kids? It's my kids running at me and my mum who has aged a lot in the past three years. And we just all screamed. So they've said you shared a document. I mean, we're talking about a government briefing before you went on air, right? Yes. Yeah. And Essentially, you broke an embargo. Yes. By a few minutes. Yes. And that's the accusation against you. Yes. I mean, when I heard that, I gasped. <laughs> 
Cheng was a former anchor for a Chinese state television. She was detained in 2020 on suspicion of sharing state secrets with another country. In 2022, she was tried in a closed courtroom, and details of the verdict were not made public until last week. Chung said she could not dis do disclose details of her case, which is seen as an example of Beijing's hostage diplomacy. Her return signals a warming of ties between Beijing and Canberra. Two Russian bombers made a seven-hour flight over the Sea of Japan. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, the two Tu-95 strategic bombers were accompanied by Su-35 fighter jets. A lieutenant general said the flight strictly complied with international airspace rules, according to a Russian news agency. The general added that long-range aviation pilots regularly carry out flights over neutral waters. Meanwhile, for the first time, a U.S. nuclear-capable B-52 strategic bomber was seen in South Korea performing a rare flyover at the opening ceremony of the country's largest ever defense exhibition. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol pledged to boost the defense industry as a key part of national security strategy. He praised the strength of the South Korea-U.S. alliance. This time, the Seoul International Aerospace and Defense Exhibition is especially accompanied by the U.S. military forces. You will be able to see in person the overwhelming capabilities of the South Korea-U.S. alliance. Yoon stated that the country would also share its experience growing its defense industry with allies and establish a system of cooperation for defense and security. Ties between North Korea and Russia are sparking concern. The White House said last week that Pyongyang had recently supplied a shipment of weapons to Russia. Here's the U.S. Special Representative for North Korea commenting in Indonesia. This is all the more important given the very worrying developments in the DPRK-Russia relationship. As many of you are aware, the United States confirmed on October 13th what we had been warning publicly. The DPIK has delivered arms to Russia for use in Ukraine. This development is in addition to the confirmed November 2022 delivery of weapons to the Kremlin-backed Wagner Group. Kim reaffirmed Washington's commitment to continue protecting its allies. Officials from Japan and South Korea also contemned alleged military cooperation between Russia and North Korea, as well as the North's frequent ballistic missile tests. Moscow has denied allegations of arms transfers with Pyongyang. The U.S. has signed a 20-year agreement with the Marshall Islands worth over $2 billion in economic assistance. The country is one of three with ties to the U.S. under the Compacts of Free Association, which allows military access to strategic ocean areas. These nations have become important in the U.S.-China battle for influence in the northern Pacific. The Marshall Islands funding will go towards education, health care, and other sectors. The agreement now awaits approval from Congress. And a single sentence describing an order of Chinese-made airplanes sold to Nepal, more trouble than they are worth. According to media, the message comes from top Nepalese offer, o officials. Of the six planes Nepal bought from China, 
One has crashed and five are grounded. Now the over $50 million aircraft are up for sale for a mere $1.6 million, a near 97% discount. Giant Chinese property developer Country Garden could be on the brink of default. The firm is, has to make a $15 million payment on some of its bonds by the end of today when a 30-day grace period ends. If it doesn't, its entire stock of offshore debt will be deemed in default. And the chances of a payment seem slim. Country Garden last week warned that it couldn't meet all its offshore debt obligations. It's already missed payments on some other bonds, although their grace periods are yet to expire. Now, non-payment would make it just the latest Chinese developer to default. The whole sector has faced a mounting crisis as home sales slow. Data from JP Morgan shows developers accounting for 40% of the country's home sales have defaulted since 2021. But with $17 billion in offshore bonds and loans, Country Garden could have an outsize impact, with default there setting the stage for one of China's biggest ever debt restructurings. Investors around the world will also be watching to see how much fallout ripples through the global financial system. With jitters mounting, analysts expect Beijing will soon have to step in with more measures to prop up its ailing property sector. Coming up, mythical heroines, a source of inspiration for Flemish master painter Peter Paul Rubens. An exhibition in London takes us closer to the female figures in his paintings. What makes us unique? And how can we preserve each distinct culture? An Australian woman shares her mission to preserve not just objects, but skills and stories. More shortly here on NTD News Today. London exhibition turns an eye toward the women who inspired Dutch master Peter Paul Rubens. The style of the mythological heroines even has its own name, Rubenesque. Let's take a look. This is one of the most lavish portraits ever painted by Flemish artist Peter Paul Rubens. The portrait of Maria Serra Pallavicino is now on display as part of a new exhibition at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London. Rubens has a kind of reputation as a superstar artist of the 17th century. Uh, he was knighted by Charles I. He has all these great accolades. He can speak six languages. It's a kind of story of male success. But when you scratch the surface, you see that actually this uh, sort of patriarchal success is grounded in the women that he surrounded himself with. Rubens is best known for his bold and mythological paintings, many of them featuring female nudes. But this exhibition wants to expand on the idea of the Rubens women and address his relationship with women. The word Rubenesque gets kind of thrown around in the English language, meaning a very particular type of thing. But what we wanted to do with this exhibition was really explore Rubens and explore how much he didn't just paint pictures of women, but he painted pictures for women. In fact, the term Rubenesque originates from his elegant brushstrokes highlighting the beauty of full-figured women. But Rubens didn't just paint nudes. He also featured women who nourished his creativity and career, such as his female patrons and family members. 
So he had female patrons who were very, very important in the formation of his career. He also painted many of his family members um, and many of his pictures show that great love that he had for his two wives and his children. So there's a real tenderness to Rubens's pictures of women. Here are the portraits of his first wife, Isabella Brandt, and his daughter, Clara Serena. Clara Serena died tragically just before her 13th birthday. This exhibition is showing Rubens in a different light, so the more intimate side to him. So you've got the big paintings in this room, but in the other rooms you have sort of pictures of his, his wife, his daughter, the more smaller sketches. So we all get to see a different side of Rubens that we're not used to. Rubens and Women unites over 40 works by the Dutch master. Many of them are on display in the UK for the first time. The exhibition runs until the end of January. Now we turn to a conversation with a cultural conservationist. She tells me that while many aspects of humanity's heritage are being at risk of being lost, much can be done to turn the tide. And she and her team down under are working to do just that. We spoke when I was there earlier this year. Conservator Victoria Pierce sees culture as infinitely renewable, but she says cultural heritage is not. Let's see some of our discussion. Every element of our community can be strengthened and benefited by em embracing our, our past. Conservator Victoria Pierce sees culture as infinitely renewable, but says cultural heritage is not. Well, heritage in our culture is what defines us. So in, fundamentally, it's always evolving and always changing. It's, an, it's almost limitless as a resource. But what is being lost is our value for our culture as we become more global. Our human connection gets smaller with the internet and through social media. And so our unique assets of what defines us nationally, in our communities, locally even, starts being diluted. She and her team in Fishwick, Australia, apply specialized skills to conserve the essence of and stories within objects, artworks, buildings, and more. I have a corrosion expert and metals conservator, an electrician and conservator who works on electrical artworks. We also have a specialist book and um, paper photographic conservator. And they work to keep intangible assets alive as well, such as skills that Pierce says are sunsetting much too soon. Barrel makers, blacksmiths, um, watchmakers, French polishers. We have uh, tanners, bookbinders, um, stone carvers, monument makers, gilders, luthiers all come to our event. A trade show to demonstrate craftsmanship to younger generations who may be mesmerized by more modern, lucrative endeavors. Because this younger generation has probably never even heard of a Cooper, uh, let alone seen one work. So the idea is to be encourage the next generation to consider these as really needed, essential and valuable careers that have fantastic export opportunities. And an opportunity through export to contribute to a world where national sovereignty and political stability coexist. It's about really looking at what our, what our strengths are through our culture and our heritage, what our strengths are that we bring to the table 
fostering those, preserving those strengths, and then sharing and exchanging those strengths. Pierce believes that each individual is responsible for increasing diplomacy amid the rising polarization in personal and political spheres. And through individual action, we increase diplomacy and civility, we could actually avoid real tragedy and potentially global war. A mission that she and her team work towards every day. Reporting from New York and Australia, Stephanie Cox, NTD News. What an uplifting story. That sounds like a great trip, Steph. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was just so interesting to learn about this mission to preserve culture in all its forms, you know, tangible and intangible. There, were, there was sheet music, there was dances, there was um, buildings and environments and all kinds of things, you know, that we do want to preserve to preserve our culture. You know, I thought it was uh, such a bold claim for her to say, you know, we're doing this to end war. Um, I like the sound of it, but how does she uh, back that up? <laughs> right. Well, you know, the idea is that through valuing our own culture and through uh, knowing our strengths, you know, we can then exchange and uh, interact with other cultures from a place of our own strengths and they too from a place of strength. So then we're coming, um, you know, in this positive mm. way to to these interactions and and one of those ways she talked about is through trade mm. so that's you know it's, this will continue to permeate uh, global interactions and that's a potent way for our interactions to play out wow so, incredible yeah. yeah all right next up october is national pasta month and that goes for the whole month but today is national pasta day happy happy pasta day chris <laughs> Happy pasta day, Steph. And my earpiece came out. <laughs> well, that sometimes <laughs> happens on National Pasta Day, but there is a way to fix it. <laughs> we just need to get a, our hands on a big bowl of pasta. That's right. right. Actually, you know, there are about 300 different kinds of pasta, believe it or not. Really? Actually, I did not know that. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I guess I'll just have to try some of those uh, and we'll have to report back on that to you. Thanks for sticking around today. That's all for today's news. Feel free to reach out with us to us with any news, tips, or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow. Mm -hmm.